0: Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 32 Thank you for listening, and welcome to an hour of conversation with a set designer where we talk not about design, but about finances as a designer. Before we get to our interview, I have a favor to ask, from me to you, and that is to tell someone about this podcast. Mentioning it in person is best, but since it is COVID times and we need to stay distant, doing it by phone, email, text, or on social media is also good. If you do it on Instagram or Facebook, please tag Artistic Finance, and if you do it on Twitter, tag me at Ethan Steimel. I can't thank you enough for spreading the word. Today's guest is set designer John Lee Beatty, a titan of American theater. His first Broadway design was Knock Knock in 1976, and 44 years later, his most recent design is Plaza Suite, which hasn't officially opened because of the pandemic shutdown. The total count of his Broadway designs is 115. He has won two Tony Awards, one for Tally's Folly in 1980, and the second for The Nance in 2013. He has received an additional 13 Tony nominations, has won five Drama Desk Awards, and been nominated for 10 more. Some of those Broadway credits are Ain't Misbehavin', The Odd Couple, Other Desert Cities, The Color Purple, and Chicago which was a revival in 1996 and is now the second-longest-running Broadway musical of all time, only behind The Phantom of the Opera. John Lee has also designed more than 70 shows at Manhattan Theatre Club and more than 66 productions of encores at City Center. He has designed for tours, The West End, and regional productions, He has also made a reputation of working on new plays, which constitutes the bulk of his portfolio and has given way to what he is known for, house interiors and exteriors and their attached gardens. While John Lee is a great designer, he also has some great financial insights, and we've packed a lot into this hour. We actually talked for more than two hours, but I've cut the conversation to just the part about finance. The rest of the interview is over on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. It's a great conversation about John Lee's career. As always, there are links to everything we talk about in the show notes or on our website, artisticfinance.com. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, John Lee Beatty, to the podcast. Thank you for giving us your time.
1: Glad to be here.
0: And before we start, I just want to say that we're recording this on December 3rd, 2020. So we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and then also a Black Lives Matter reawakening.
1: Yes, important.
0: Yeah. Could you tell us how you got into being a set designer?
1: Oh, I have. Uh, I had an over-enriched childhood. I realized recently that I saw my first Shakespeare at age five, and I remember the scenery and the costumes, which is really interesting. Really, everything really cooked. My parents took me to see Peter Pan trying out at Civic Light Opera in L.A., and it's a typical story. I wanted to fly. I wanted to be Peter Pan, but oddly this first grader I figured out scenery in a big way like I just got it like to this day I could copy the ground plan and I have some questions I want to ask about the ground cloth it's it's just it went into me and I don't it's an interesting thing when you teach children an odd sophistication in in someone who's you know barely not in long pants even you know what I mean I've talked to some second graders at a special ed class once, and this one boy looked at all my work, and he said, you're deeply affected by the work of Alfred Hitchcock, aren't you? And I'm like, wowza. And yes, I am, because I'm also affected by the movies I saw, you know, and wow. It's a very interesting thing, design, that that little design eye thing. You may be born with it, because I was like a joke in my hometown, because I could describe people's living rooms. Wait,
0: do you have a photographic memory or you just, it's just the,
1: in, the interiors? Yes, I have a thing for interiors uh, and exteriors. I, one of my great hobbies is just walking around New York, looking at the buildings and guessing their age. And, and I wouldn't even say guessing. I sort of know their age. I, I have an eye for it. I, it's just part of me. I grew up in old houses with a lot of woodwork, which shows up in my work. Constantly. And I, I would say a lot of my childhood just shows up in my work. Yeah.
0: Could you describe your demographics for us?
1: Yes, I'm a, a male and 72 years old. I'm a very pink white person, kind of waspy. Yeah. Well educated.
0: Yeah. If anybody has seen your work, they sort of know your creative personality, maybe. But what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member?
1: In theater, for some reason, a matinee of a good show. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I think it brings me back to childhood, but I, I, something in the air. I really enjoy that. What is a piece of art that you like? Uh, mostly painting painting or, or architecture. I'm not a sculpture guy. John Singer Sargent, Vuillard, and oddly Franz Klein.
0: All right. That, you know, I buy it. I buy those painters for you.
1: Look at, my, look at my work, you'll, you'll see it all.
0: <laughs> okay, on the days that you wake up and you don't feel like going to work, what keeps you motivated?
1: If I am not hired to do a job, I am one of the laziest people on the planet. But I am a very hard worker if you hire me and I, I have all that wonderful Protestant guilt that just drives me to turn in every paper on time and things like that, yeah. What kind of music do you listen to? I listened to no music. Really? I, uh, well, back in the days of uh, long-playing records, if I had to pull an all-nighter, I would have a stack of Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, the funny one is I had a Latilenia Lenya album, and if forced, I think I could sing Surabaya Johnny in German. You stacked the records, and as you stayed up endlessly, the records would just repeat, and I would hear Surabaya Johnny over and over.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. So when you're painting... When you're sketching a paint elevation or something,
1: I go into a zone. I go into a zone. a Time has no meaning, and I actually books on tape. Oddly, while I'm drafting, I I remember being in a shop once and I was pointing to like a window sill and telling the guys how I wanted the cap to be. And I was thinking, isn't that funny? That's where Darcy proposed to Elizabeth. <laughs> but it doesn't use the same part of your brain, whatever it is. I discovered I can't watch something and draft, but I can. Hear a story and draft, and it doesn't interfere with whatever part of the brain does the technical drafting.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's your creative personality. Now, onto your financial personality. But before we do that, I just want to say that you, you mentioned that you would go back to Yale and give talks to the management students. Is
1: that right? Uh, I was once asked by the management students at Yale to go back and talk to those students in management about the business of being a set designer. And I thought of myself as not much of a businessman, but it was really interesting. Once I started, I realized, oh my God, I really know a lot about this because of course I lived it, but I had to learn it on my own. Ming Cho Lee, who was still teaching at Yale, got very upset because of three or four design students went into the class and audited it. Uh, Ming got very upset because he felt that uh, graduate students should be protected from the business part of show business, or protected from show business, shall I say? And uh, I don't know if I agree or not. Ming didn't even tell us much about the union exam when I was a student at Yale. And I, when I graduated from Yale, I went and, at the same moment, went and took the union exam as a scenic artist and as a scene designer because Arnold Abramson had been my Uh, who is head of Nolan Studios and probably the most famous scenic artist in New York, he had taught me scene painting as well, although I knew scene painting from doing it earlier. So I got into both unions. But yeah, I I, I felt like I wish I could share more about the business of design because... your ability to be able to continue designing is based on how well you handle the business end. The funny thing about it being a business is that, you know, I, when especially doing regional theater, you're flying across the country over and over and you're plowing through the airline magazine. I read all these business things in the magazine and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Ha ha, it has nothing to do with me and I'm reading them, but you're bored so you read them. And all of a sudden I realized this is about me. What they're talking about in business is about me. When they talk about diversifying, which we do, we just don't realize it, or long-term investment, or, or even those stupid things about being single and being fixed up because you don't have time to meet somebody. You know, those things are very similar to what we do in theater.
0: That's amazing. So are you good or bad with money?
1: You know, I think the best description is that money sticks to me. I don't know why. For some reason, I turn around and I say I have no money, and I look in my bank account, and I have more than I thought. And I, I, I don't know why that is. I do know, being a good little Protestant boy, I really hate to borrow money. Uh, it's just embarrassing if you don't have it. So I've managed to avoid the embarrassment by covering my ass financially. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so then does that mean you're a saver oh, yes. versus a
1: spender? I'm a saver. I probably should have spent a little bit more, but you know, my father had been traumatized by the depression. I had older parents. My father had been traumatized by the depression and we were academics, so you live thriftily. Although you probably figured out by now that my parents paid my way through Brown University and through Yale School of Drama so I came to New York with a clean slate. I didn't have any debt, which was a great, great gift. But I really had no money at all. <laughs> Even at Yale, the, some of the uh, the uh, students on scholarship had more money than I did. They would say, "Oh, we're going for a fun weekend in New York," and I would say, "I can't afford you, I'm sorry." <laughs> and like, I thought it was kind of ironic that my parents had, you know, never had a had saved up and never had a new car and all that, so that I could be educated.
0: Yeah, yeah. amazing. What? What? When did you come to New York? What year?
1: 1973. Uh, from Summer Stock. I had been doing Summer Stock uh, every summer.
0: And uh, no student loan debt. That's like always the greatest. Is when people show, you know start out with yeah, because zero is is bad, but it's better than negative.
1: Yeah, the first Christmas Eve, I was literally at zero. Uh, I. I had to borrow a penny because I had 69 cents and I needed to go on the subway twice, which was 35 cents. The only thing in the cupboard was rice and a bay leaf, I think, and I had that for dinner, <laughs> which sounds pathetic. It's just back before computers, your checks never came in on time. It was a cash flow problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that That's amazing. So, okay. So have you had any big debts throughout your life? Since no student debt, so that's good. But did you have any medical debt or anything else?
1: I was luckily, I'm on the Upper West Side. Uh, My generation came to the Upper West Side. That's where it was cheap. So uh, I am in my apartment that I moved to in 1975. And in the 80s, it went co-op. And I was busy doing shows. So it was easier just to buy it than to move. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm still here. So, and it was a bargain, of course. Back in those days, a mortgage was, I think it was 14 point, uh, somewhere about 14.5, which was shocking. But you could also make money on your savings account back then as well, because you got, you know, I don't remember what it was, 7% or something good. I actually had leftover money eventually, and I didn't, I'm stupid, but smart. And I, when I was paying the mortgage, I would sometimes, I, I think, oh, well, I have a little more money and. Uh, I would add like 200 or a hundred bucks more. And I didn't realize I was paying off the principal until it came time to refinance. And someone looked at it for me and they said, but you're so close to the end. you're you." And I was really, and turned out the mortgage was over before. I was expecting it to be.
0: That's amazing. Okay, I know we're going back in time here, but you you said when it was time to refinance, does that mean like your 14.5 interest rate expired every so often?
1: No, I I was locked into that uh, because they were going skyrocketing when I bought it. So that seemed like a good idea to be locked into it rather than a variable rate. You know, it was a good five years into it before I think the economy changed. You have to remember, I came to New York during the recession in the 70s, which was both a bad and a good thing. The good thing for a young artist was, you know, I lived on West 76th Street in a one room apartment, but, you know, it was, and you could afford to do things, and the theater companies could, you know, you had a hole in the wall, but you could actually have a theater company for not much money, nobody else wanted the space. So there's a great benefits about everybody being financially equal, although we were equally, I always say it was sort of a post-hippie environment, but you know, it wasn't especially cool to be wealthy or anything, so that helped. It wasn't until the 80s where people started having a lot more money and theaters got a lot slicker where the discrepancies started being painful.
0: Okay, so one more question about the apartment. Did you ever refinance or did you just pay it off and you've had it paid off now?
1: I I had paid off so much of it by that point, unbeknownst to myself, that it wasn't worth it. And I just finished and it was gone. So I never had an overhead. I just have maintenance. Let's go back to apartments. A signal event in my life when I came to New York was that another guy from Yale uh, came to New York. He got a job assisting Douglas, Douglas W. Schmidt. Doug, who I later assisted, couldn't pay very much. And this guy had gotten a, I think a three hundred and fifty dollar apartment, and mine was a hundred and ninety five. <laughs> so he quit before he even started with Doug. He said, "I can't afford it." And I was I had a low overhead, so I went over, and within two days, I had a job assisting on a Broadway show just because I was financially flexible enough that I could starve to death <laughs> attractively. <laughs> Doug then ran out of money. I mean, you know, he was given assistant weeks and I was a union assistant, Well, but he would run out of money. So I was a union scenic artist as well, legally. I had the card. So I would then go out and paint scenery and that paid very well. It was $30 an hour and overtime was double time, which was astonishing. Even today, I think that's a very good income. I would do that for a while till that would dry up. And then at night, I went over to the Manhattan Theater Club, which was a very small four-person operation and worked with college friends. And that led to my first off-Broadway show. So the flexibility I had and actually the diversification (laughs) I had early on um, was the key to it all.
0: Yeah. At what point did you get your union cards
1: versus from when you moved to New York? before I came to New York. I, I told you I was from an academic family. I turned in all my papers on time. I turned in every project on time. The only person at Yale who ever did that, I think. I, of course, then took the union exam exactly on time.
0: That's amazing. When you have excess money, what do you do with
1: it? Everybody makes fun of me. I, my friends make fun of me. I live modestly. I dress modestly. I don't have a car. I love to travel, and I major travel. From the beginning, that was it. And I mean, I think the first big trip was Japan, but Syria, Russia, during the Iron Curtain, I mean, everything. Uzbekistan, I'm a traveler.
0: And during this pandemic, are you just lining up your next destinations?
1: I'm extremely frustrated because I made a travel fund from my my older years, and I should be having a little apartment in Paris right now, and I'm kind of pissed off that I can't spend the money I saved. I know. I
0: know. <laughs> Do you think about money on a daily basis?
1: No, it doesn't interest me unless there's a big problem, at which point it does. But, but no.
0: Do you or have you used a budget throughout your life?
1: When I first came to New York, it was before credit cards. So actually, the budgeting was pretty easy. You looked inside your wallet. Uh, so that was pretty clear whether you're doing right something right or wrong. Budget. I think subconsciously, yes, I do budget. I'm very good with the budget uh, on shows. That's one reason you hire me.
0: What is the best financial decision that you've ever made?
1: I think buying my apartment was probably the wisest one. I would also say it might have been the worst one because I've spent my life in an apartment I'm not sure I would have chosen if I would just gone out to find the most wonderful apartment in Manhattan. It's a lovely apartment, but um, but it was a really good choice just in terms of stability and, and investment because it only increases its value until this year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So if we go back to 1980 when you bought it? At the time, I know you said you were too busy working. Was it like super expensive and you were like, what, this is a crazy decision?
1: No, because why that would be a good idea was you got the insider's price, which was 50% of its value. So wow, fantastic. I mean, it was $100,000 to be honest.
0: So. Yeah, which, so so it would have been 200,000. Probably, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like at that point, you would have done anything to be like, oh, that's a good idea. I should buy that.
1: And I think you're hitting a very serious point. Uh, All of my financials are based on me being able to do my work. So the reasonably priced apartment where I didn't have to move just meant that I could be a leaner machine that works. You know, it didn't get in the way because nothing can get in the way of the work, period.
0: Yeah. What is the worst financial decision that you've ever made?
1: I think it was more of an attitude, my own modesty. I didn't learn enough about investing early enough. I just didn't think it applied to me and I was kind of modest and that was a mistake. I would say the biggest trouble I got into though was that I was audited by the IRS for altruistic reasons I had loaned somebody some money I didn't realize that when they repaid me by check that that would look like income because I didn't do any paperwork they were somebody I liked so and then I also was not careful about my reimbursements because when you're doing a lot of props I would be like buying a sofa on a weekend with my own money because they were desperate for it in the rehearsal hall and I would turn in, the receipt to the producer's manager of the show, and the manager would reimburse me. So those reimbursements were going back into my checking account. And you can see to the IRS, it looked like additional income, when in truth, it was reimbursement. But trying to prove all that was a five-year process. And i they asked for $60,000. And I think I ended up, I had to get a lawyer. And I think I ended up paying the lawyer, of course, and I think $16,000. The other thing to remember, I had had Ain't Misbehaven was a big hit and had moved to London. And I was reliant on the tax receipts that came in, as they do for everything, but they don't come in from Europe because they're not filing it. So that income, I didn't have a record of the income except the stubs of the checks from my agent. So I just didn't acknowledge that European income was something you have to deal with uh, in a different way. So that
0: that played into the audit, or is that a separate?
1: Yeah, that, the 16000 I think, was the European part of it, because I really hadn't paid taxes on it. I didn't realize I hadn't, but I, I hadn't.
0: So it's like, it's like when you're doing your taxes, you give all the forms and you say this is all the income and you just you just forgot about the european part
1: yeah because there was no record of it you know you're ta- we're talking uh, this was 78 980 we're talking pre computer so These would be check stubs and oddly written forms, yeah.
0: Okay. Do you do your own taxes?
1: No, I go to, uh, I've been going to elite tax service for, I think I'm their oldest client for a very long time. And I realized once the career started going, I went from a very nice woman who did my taxes with me casually, and she left and it went to Seven Lively Arts, I think was named, the company. And then Tina Barakay left there and formed Elite. But it was a show business taxes. And that was very helpful because the IRS basically hates us because I had, what, 17 employers a year who were all paying me differently. And uh, sometimes I get a per diem. They don't always include housing. They don't always include food. You know, it it was so many different strands of foolish. And of course, you look foolish because you're a designer. (laughs)
0: <laughs> when you were audited, somebody else was doing your taxes for you?
1: Yeah, and she had to go down, but it was still a lot of work for me and, and a lot of sleepless nights. Of uh, One thing I learned about the sleepless nights, if, if you're ever audited or have a problem with the government, it's supposed to last three years. It lasted five. Just don't sweat it. It's not worth it. I was losing sleep over it, and it turned out it dragged on so long. By the time it was settled, it was a Old news and not, not worth the agony.
0: From the from the mouth of John Lee Beatty, don't be afraid of the IRS.
1: <laughs> no, not really. And the funny thing about the IRS, they actually helped me in one way because the guy, a very nice guy, sat down and explained to me how I could have been cheating all these years. And I didn't understand how I could have been cheating. And by explaining how I could have been cheating, I won't say he told me how to cheat, but I sort of saw how you have to separate the money in a way that it doesn't appear to be contradictory in your accounts. When I later went to invest, I would, instead of taking all the reimbursement money and putting it right back into my checking account, I would just take it and invest it with Dreyfus, actually, I think was the first one, so... I think you will have guessed by now that I am not an incorporated business. I'm an unincorporated business, but one thing I also learned from the tax people was an unincorporated business pays UBT unincorporated business tax and I pay estimated unincorporated business tax along the rest of my estimated taxes because I'm mostly paid in 1099. Just because you're not incorporated doesn't mean you're not a business. It's an unincorporated But I I should warn you, designers, some of my friends didn't know that. And I I don't know if the IRS ever caught them. But uh, that was another problem I discovered was that I should have been paying unincorporated business tax. I don't think that I was penalized or anything. It, It just wasn't I wasn't enough of a grown-up about it to realize that I actually had become a business.
0: Okay, so now you're retirement planning.
1: Yes, (laughs) I'm really into retirement planning. Are you really? Yes, I am. I read ARP Magazine, I give people advice, just in terms of just giving advice in general. One other mistake I made, and I don't do it now, but I think I bore people, but I talk about retirement and pensions, and I talk about, my audit. I talk about different things because that's the only way those of us who are in this together will learn what we're supposed to do. Uh, Right now, Ken Billington, the lighting designer, and I are about the same age, and we both did Chicago. We call each other and say, do you know that you have to, for example, register for Medicare Part A, even if you're on the union health plan, Part A when you're 65? That's hospital. So, there are a lot of things and about pensions and when they actually kick in. A pension will say that it kicks in, say, at 66, but that actually means 66 and a half, or it could even mean 67, that they'll think retroactively. There's a lot of information you should be sharing with your friends, not the dollar amounts, but, but, but I have to say, I'm very proud of my union, thrilled that the health care and the pension is sensationally good. Believe me, the producers of regional theater and the producers on Broadway could care less if I dropped dead. So uh, the union is what's protecting me. More importantly, if I were ill, seriously ill.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to ask you all the parts of your retirement? Because because of the pension, I feel like that's probably your main. But I assume you're also
1: collecting Social Security. (laughs) You have to collect Social Security. I went down to the Social Security office and said, I have a pension. I don't really need this. And they said, do not think you're being angelic by not taking it. You're not helping anybody. And they said, if you feel so bad about it, just give it away as charity. But you take your Social Security. I did wait till I was 70 because I really didn't need it. It's common. I now understand that much better. They're really great down at the Social Security office uh, in the theater district. I was surprised how nice they were. And you can sit down with them anytime and talk to them about it. And they will explain it. I went in twice and we ended up doing it when I hit 70.
0: Do you have an IRA? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't think you do either. I. am not to date you, but I sort of think that's a past your time thing.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I know. I saw some of your questions, and I thought, "Whoa, this is going to be embarrassing." I have money, but I'm not sure I know what some of these letters are. <laughs> so then, I have a pension. I have a pension from the United Scenic Artists, and the pension is a defined benefit plan, which is fantastic the thing about it, you all say, yeah, you made so much money from Chicago. Okay, yeah. But the key to the pension is the frequency of contribution, not the amount. The fact that I've just, you know, a hit show only has to pay 35 weeks out of a 52-week year in a long run, but all my other shows as well, you know, but it's the consistent, I've worked a lot, rather than the dollar amount of my shows they are richer designers, but the consistency of the contribution to the pension is really important and pays off, pays off big time. <laughs> and defined benefit is just heaven. I mean, that's so rare these days. I, I'm really a fortunate fellow.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. So outside of your pension and I, I'll call your apartment, I guess it's not really a thing, but outside of those, do you invest in anything?
1: Yeah, I have uh, really. I, I, I'm ashamed to say it's probably mostly mutual funds. But I literally walked in off the street at Dreyfus, uh, which isn't Dreyfus anymore. But back in the day, and said, you know, I have sixty thousand dollars too much money in my checking. Can I do something? And and this guy, I lucked out. The guy was terrific, and we started investing in mutual funds. Uh, my tax person wanted me to. Uh, she did two things. Uh, one, she wanted me to invest in tax-exempt or tax-deferred funds, which was a great idea 30 years ago. Tax-deferred, I should have thought a little bit about what tax-deferred meant, because deferred till when? And now, of course, I have to take payouts now. Legally, you you, you take a, one of the RDAs or whatever they're called you literally have to you're forced after 70 to take money out of these accounts and you pay taxes on that money.
0: I am always a big proponent. Anytime I meet anybody, specifically a young person, I say, "Oh, do you have a Roth IRA?" Roth is where you pay the taxes right now, but in retirement you don't have to pay them.
1: Yeah, and I wish I had done something a little more like that because I just have the money sitting there, but I'm I was thinking of buying a second house uh, you know for fun uh and then i've heard found out what the taxes would be on re- pulling the money out and i was like really because i could buy an apartment for the taxes yeah. <laughs> so which could be but you know i mean i i it's nice to have the money <laughs> we should have such problems <laughs> you know but yeah uh, well- and the time ta- if you're in the middle of your career, uh, it was excellent to be tax deferred and not be messing around with income.
0: Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's there's no wrong answer. Like either way is right, it is good.
1: A uh, word of warning, when you get to hitting some of these landmark uh, landmark years, like uh, 66 or 70 and a half or, or maybe 66 and a half for some people, you're... Taxes change radically because of all the plans that you've been involved in. So you have to sit down and really redo your whole tax structure at that point. The most serious one came up to me when I really retired at sort of 70 and a half, because now you have annuities paying off and you've got your pension coming in and you've got Social Security coming in. Everything's coming in and in in a different way than paychecks. So now you have to really rethink how your taxes are structured.
0: And, and also, John Lee, I feel like you're a great example because I talk to some, some of my fellow theater artists and we talk about retirement and they say, I'm just going to work until I die is my retirement plan. I think you're a great example because you're retired, but you're still working.
1: Right. Thank you. And that's a good point. Uh, legally, you have to remember in a union, if if you retire and take your pension at age 65 or whatever, 66, you are only allowed to work 10 days a month without having to go out of the pension, which you're allowed to do. But that's awkward. You hit the sweet spot at 70 because at that point you can get your pension and you can also work as much as you want. So yes, I, 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 it's a soft retirement. I'm not lowering the curtain because at this point it's all gravy. I can just keep working, and there's no penalties, and and it's just that five-year stretch in there between 65 and so. But it's a wonderful pension in the union because you can drop in and out. I like William ivy Long and Santo lacuasto Jennifer, my house, all these people have dropped in and out until you don't have to. I wouldn't dream of telling you their ages, but uh, <laughs> until
0: you don't have to. Um, wait, so does that mean from 65 to 70 you were in that balance?
1: No, I didn't take the pension. So uh, it was the last year I realized, of course, that I wasn't working quite as much. And I realized that actually I hadn't worked more than 10 days a month for six months. And uh, I went and just started the pension because it was, why not?
0: <laughs> I, I also think you're a wonderful example for people because you have that union pension, but that's just one part of your story. Like you have your other pension. Yeah. And, and... and
1: social security is great. And it, it social security is about enough to pay my maintenance at my apartment and plus a couple bags of grocery, but you couldn't obviously live on social security in new york very easily but yeah it's it's good to have more than one source of income and it's it, it can be fun too like a friend of mine found out that they did have some money from a previous pension at the union and the person there said well it wasn't worth anything it was just a thousand dollars a year and my friend said oh that's great because you know then you can take that thousand dollars a year and just waste it because you don't feel like you're looting any pensions. You know, you just, it's just a little dribble of something you can go out and be really bad and buy lots of chocolate, you know, (laughs) you should have a little something as sober as it is to take care of yourself. There should be a little source of fun money that's budgeted in there somewhere. I will also say about retirement ARP Magazine is a useful tool, and ARP tells you that most people make a mistake in the, let's say, 70 to 90 age range, which is the 20 years of your retirement, basically. Most people are so worried about not having enough money later in life that they don't spend enough money between 70 and 80. And Arp Arp says, in most cases, you are are undershooting and you should go out and have your travels and all your stuff. You're not going to be traveling when you're 87. So make sure you celebrate that first 10 years of retirement by spending some of the money.
0: John Lee, I'm so glad I'm talking to you. I I think I need to go talk with my parents. I mean, I I sort of know your guys' plans. I need to, I I have some new information to share with you.
1: (laughs) Well, my parents are a good example because my both parents, my mother lived to be 91 and my father lived to be 98 and a half. So they must have done something right. I don't know. But you also see, uh, unfortunately for me, uh, we didn't talk about money at all at home and certainly never at the dinner table. I even have trouble at work if someone wants to go talk business in a restaurant I, I I sort of short circuit but we didn't talk about money at all and we really should have and but my mother was a very intelligent woman and planned finances very well and I when she died and I saw what she left I thought wow that was you you aimed very well <laughs> but I wish you'd shared shared the information just so I could emulate you <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm so glad you you brought that up because I skipped that question earlier of if you had good financial examples in your life. Because I thought it sounded like you had.
1: (laughs) Well, I had good examples in that my parents were not profligate with their money. So I was brought up in a financially responsible house where debt wasn't a big thing. Profligate spending wasn't an issue.
0: Because I also I read about money and a lot of times... It's uh, talking about wealth, path, passing wealth from generation to generation. It always comes up that it's not the amount of money that you're passing from generation to generation. It's if you've communicated how to keep it, maintain it, grow it. That's sort of the key.
1: That's a very good point. I wish I had inherited uh, a little more uh, profligacy, if I should say it. I, I tend to undershoot a little when paying for things. and. Um, I've learned, though, by being a designer, and this is another part about being a designer, it's the big, dark secret, but we all have to kick in some money on our shows occasionally, and it's really odd when you're, say, working for Mark Mike Nichols, and he has, you know, $150 million, and you don't have even a million, but you're the one who's paying for a replacement mirror because he didn't like the first one. Uh, That's ironic, but uh, that's the dirty secret. And I've talked to other designers about this, and that's something you have to address. But on the positive side of that, Doug Schmidt told me, said, you know, when you think you're saving money, you may not be if there's a problem, have you thought about what would happen if you threw some money at that problem? And would that problem go away? And I have to force myself to ask that, you know, and there've been a number of shows, especially now that I have enough spending money. I think if I just spent $1,200 on this show and didn't tell anybody, my life would be a lot easier (laughs) and the show would be better. So that's a very good trade. Very good trade. You know what I'd like to go back and talk about, though, is when I started, I came into the city and I was, you know, the bright young thing, the new snotty young designer from Yale. And everybody tries you out and, you know, I'm trotting around showing my portfolio and I was lucky to get hired. But one reason they hire you when you're young is because you're cheap. And my first Broadway shows were all for minimum. I wasn't fooling anybody. Who am I to be paid more than minimum? Some of the producers would sort of chuckle and like once called me the poor man's central Loquasto, which I thought was really funny. He had a point why that was funny was he had a point that, you know, a young and fairly inexperienced, not on the top of the heap designer, you know, you, know, you basically get paid minimum. Sadly for me, my, I had a huge hit, Ain't misbehaving, but I was a very young man and I wasn't, it was only my fifth Broadway show. So I didn't have any muscle on that, and you get income just because it's a hit. I mean, there are five, six companies, and, and uh, you've got royalties, but the royalties were minimal. But there were royalties, and they did pay the rent, so I'm not begrudging it. The producer, Manny Eisenberg, once said to me, he said, you know, I really got away without paying you very much money. And I said, well, you actually did, because I knew that I was paying you for what that brought me. In other words, I was smart enough, thank God, to realize that the experience and the exposure of that show was going to be worth more 10 years down the road than if I'd been paid three times what I had. I mean, don't fool yourself. You're a young and inexperienced person. You're lucky to be there, but I consider it money earned. And I was absolutely right about that. It turned out, you know, 10 years later, I was double minimum type of guy. This question
0: might tie into that, maybe, but what job of yours has been most financially lucrative?
1: Well, obviously, I hit the jackpot with Chicago as the lucrative moneymaker. (laughs) Phenomenal, weird... It's almost like watching a pinball go down the chart, you know, like hitting all these little things oddly. And just when you think Chicago's going to close, the movie comes out, which should have closed it, but Chicago, it actually gave it new life. And it was the first musical that actually did better after the movie. <laughs> Everything about Chicago was flukishly financially, uh, and it. Because it's a simple musical, it recouped very quickly. Within less than a year, it recouped. And, you know, I'm paid not only a royalty, but a part of the the pot of money that shows up in profits after recoupment, even though they wanted to pay us as little as possible, you still (laughs) are making a lot of money. So I I guess that would be it. I should hasten to add, though, I love doing plays. I think I'm best known for plays and I love going, I love doing new plays. People always dismiss plays and the big monies in the musicals, but a hit play has a much smaller pie to slice in terms of profits. Like you don't have a choreographer, you don't have composers, but there's a, it's a small entity and they usually are calculated to be hits and sell out at sell at 80% capacity. I was on one play that flukishly became an enormous hit and 100% capacity at which point the percentages of how much I made off of it went into the stratosphere and you're and you thought oh this is like a little the little engine that could because uh there were so few people sharing the pie. It was a two-character play, you know, and the set didn't move. And there were so many things that went right. And, and a long-running play can be a very nice little income, and they're paying your pension and welfare, aren't they? So do not discount them. Some of these huge musicals can run three, four, five years and never make a profit and never recoup, you know. Uh, recoupment is the main word. In fact, on that particular play, Brian McDevitt was the lighting designer, and he kept wanting to have another lighting session to just fix a few things that bothered him. And I'd go over to him and slam my elbow into his ribs and say, Brian, recoupment, recoupment, recoupment. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. It seems like you
0: understand this, and I've never had a royalty, so I don't know how it works.
1: It's not a royalty. It's an additional weekly compensation for legal reasons. Yes.
0: Oh. Okay, uh, before let's say before recruitment, do you get the not royalty the first week after it opens? Like, do you get it every week or month?
1: There are a lot of different uh, schedules for how you're paid your royalties. They could guarantee you eight weeks of royalties in advance, for example. So even if the show closed, you'd get that. Or basically, you're paid a negotiated or or minimum royalty once a week for each company. So if you have a hit show, you would get that additional weekly compensation for each of the companies that's running. So say Chicago had a, one time, I think, five companies. So you'd be getting a weekly for each of those companies. Okay. And then, and
0: then when it hits that beautiful recoupment. Th-
1: when it hits recoupment, and this is why you want an agent, when it hits recoupment, uh, you start sharing and basically sharing in the profits. Because it is paid, its recoupment isn't just 100% paying back the investment; it's like 110 or 120. But basically, once they're safe, it basically becomes all profits. At which point, it's divided. You could be in a what they call a royalty pool. For they, they engineer different versions of it. But basically, you, if you've got a percentage of the show, which an established designer would get, not a starting out, but a if you have a percentage, then you get percentage from recoupment onward. Towards the end of the run, they might ask you to the recoupment. If it's starting to flatten out, you won't get it anymore. It'll go down to zero again. You just get your royalty at a certain point. They can always ask you not even to take your royalty. They waive your royalties. We're going to have a rough two months here, so can you ra- we are all going to waive royalties? Will you agree to do that? You have to be a little cautious about that because you want to make sure everybody is waiving their royalty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Do you have a professional network and has it helped you make more money?
1: We're all dependent on each other for jobs. I, I think from the very beginning of showing up in New York, we are so dependent on each other. That's why I say you should talk to each other about your finances, not the numbers, but about how it works. I learned a lot by being an assistant. I liked assisting and uh I would ask the the other assistants and I would talk about places to work and how to get there and, you know, uh and learning that in show business that a 3-day job is nothing to be ashamed of. There are 3-day jobs in show business. If you're a set designer, you tend to be leading a little bit more uh They're more likely to hire you first and start working with you first than costumes and lighting and sound, but not always. I think I probably get more other designers' work for them than others. In a couple of cases, I've prevented two people from being fired also. But uh, as your career trends, people know you, and that's both a good and a bad thing. Some people say, well, we know John Lee, we expect him to do blah, 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 blah. And you know, then they dismiss you, or you're known, and uh, you know that helps. But it hurts as much as it helps. But then you know, you you're sort of used to the other collaborators, which is really important because you can work with the other people. Yeah.
0: Um, How much of your success has been hard work versus luck?
1: It's all hard work, believe me. I was very fortunate. Let's say the word fortunate rather than luck, but uh, just funny things that happened coming to new york and doug schmidt needing an assistant that week I, it's just bizarre and accidentally working in a theater where they brought in marshall mason who was the head of circle repertory company and being a shotgun marriage and that he was presented with me and had to take me and then went on for i still work with him so i mean that went on forever and you know but basically one thing leads to another so i don't really think of it as luck and in fact i would warn you i think one of the most awkward and not helpful shows i ever was on was one that looked like a lucky break and it turned out i was in over my head and and that wasn't a good thing so
0: if money was not an issue what would your life's goal be
1: money cannot be an issue Doing what I do, money cannot be an issue. In one case, protecting yourself by having enough money so you can do it. Doing something for money is pointless, doesn't help you. And if people find out you're doing it for money, it just makes you look like a whore. So, no. But a lot of our financial well-being is so we can continue to work. Nobody can hire you if you can't eat dinner first you know but i mean you really just are trying to set a machine in motion so you can move forward
0: what financial advice would you give yourself when you started out or would you give another set designer who's coming to new york
1: advice i would give myself was be a little looser spend a little bit more money you know walking in the rain instead of taking a cab okay you saved five bucks but what did you really gain (laughs) Someone coming in, I would say the same thing I just found out accidentally. Do not position yourself that you need so much income that you can't sustain a starting out career. I have a friend who's very successful now, but he's staying in the apartment he started in because he's realizing that having a reasonable apartment rent is a really good bedrock for doing many other things, including going on vacations. Maybe you should measure your desire for luxury against your desire for future luxuries (laughs) or smaller luxuries. (laughs) Yeah.
0: What can you and I do to stress the importance of finance and savings to our fellow artists?
1: I wish I'd known more when I started and was a, a young designer an assistant and painter i wish i'd known more and asked the people around me more although i everything i learned i did learn from the people around me you also want to make sure that you don't make money an issue in the room so that you're making people feel bad or or making yourself feel bad don't I, you know don't be a money victim and don't be a money snob because It's just a tool, (laughs) it's a tool. If anybody perceives you to be this poor schlub who's always whining about money, that's a negative vibe that comes back to be punished by its fulfillment. (laughs) I always, I think people thought I had money that I was from some, you know, because I had an Ivy League education and blah, blah, blah. I think people thought I came from great comfort. But, you know, I'm just a middle-class boy. And, but I think I always acted like money wasn't the issue. And I was very helpful.
0: Okay, so we're now to the final questions. What separates those that have a full-time career in the arts from those that never start or transition out at some point?
1: What separates you is that you don't know what it's like inside. And I do feel sometimes that, especially as a designer, that you're alone in that you there are not that many people who know what it's like to be inside the machine. you got to fix that somehow, but it's an inside experience, and if you stay in, in the profession as I have so long, uh, you know how the inside works, but there are very few other people that do. you know your agent probably, and you know sometimes you smile at, like at a designer friend who's in the same sort of boat as you and, and you get it but it's a very distinct and specific small group <laughs> and you don't expect anybody from the outside to understand it because it, it's really i actually laughingly say i should have gone into arts counseling because you really need someone who understands the inside of, of it to understand what the frustrations are and the problems are
0: okay John Lee, the final question, where can people find out more about you?
1: I don't know where you find out more about me. I Google myself and I'm like, wow, that one's wrong. Uh, I don't have a website. Uh, as a business, I decided not to have a website. And, and I actually uh, don't put my renderings, full renderings out very often on, on the web. So you can't always find me. Some people have copied my work, which is another legal problem that sometimes has had very unfortunate consequences. But uh, I used to talk to Ben Edwards, uh, the designer, and his wife, Jane Greenwood, about this. I really wanted a long career, and I wanted it to be on the back burner. I didn't want to be the most spectacular, trendiest designer of all time. I wanted to have a long career. So I purposely didn't get a press agent or anything to make me out to be spectacular because I wanted that long career, which thank God I achieved. I also decided to keep my business small. I decided not to incorporate and I decided not to expend a lot on business. And I do all my work out of a studio in my apartment. So I never had a raft of assistance on permanent salary or anything like that. And this was partly financial. And I just didn't want the overhead and I didn't want the complications of all that. And I was doing plays. I wasn't doing mega musicals. So uh, I felt that was a more appropriate place to be. You also don't want, as a designer, I wanted to do new plays, which often happen in basements off Broadway. So I didn't want to be such a grand designer that you wouldn't call me up to do a new John Patrick Shanley play or a, all. And these hit plays I did, they all came from basements, you know. So it was a decision how to set up my business that I, I was pretty conscientious about. And that, that included not really going whole hog in terms of promoting myself. That may have been a bad decision. I don't know. I'm left with what I have. So
0: Yeah. No, that's 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 interesting.
1: Because there's a point in a designer's career if you succeed that you have to really decide whether to open a, a design office. And uh, on big musicals, I ended up just getting a separate space and setting up the assistance and the model there. For my normal work life, I, people used to make fun of me because I would carry yeah. designs around in a paper bag or a, a canvas bag. But I, I really wanted to be able to move and, and not have an overhead that was constantly threatening me like Ken Billington's done the reverse and is very successful but he also keeps his guys busy he finds outside jobs to keep them going and he that's a very I'm not saying he did anything wrong actually it's fascinating we're friends and I go visit him at his studio I think oh wow you know this could have been me if I had gone this way rather than that way but it was a we laugh about it but it was a very specific Decision because once you set up an office, you really have to keep the office going. You can't just, you know. And and in six months of if I'm out of town just executing shows for six months, well, what happens to that office? You know, especially since I do small shows. I admire so these people who do these big Broadway musicals because I, I, you really need to set up a business, a big operation for that. It's funny when the producers say, "Can't you have someone from your office just?" And I'm like, "There's no one." I look at my contract and see how many weeks of an assistant they're giving me. I never go over that. A lot of designers do and then they end up spending their entire fee paying for the assist extra weeks of the assistant at which point you have no income. And I'm thinking, well, if they only want 7 weeks of an assistant, that's the way we're going to organize it. After that, I'm doing the work. Clearly that was their intention. So, we're not going to give up our fee to pay for extra assistance. I'm just not going to do it. And that was a big decision, business decision I made about how I was going to run John Lee Beatty Unincorporated. (laughs) You know, I also, at the height of my career, I was doing 14 shows a year about. You also have to, if you want to keep going and make an income at all, you have to do a lot of shows and many at the same time. And some designers fell by the wayside financially because they couldn't do that or couldn't see their way to doing that if you want to continue you you that's kind of what you have to do you you give up a lot for that i i always made myself available i don't have a dog i don't have children i don't have you know i i'm basically made to run John
0: Lee, thank you so much for sitting down and talking and giving us your time.
1: Oh, thank you. I thought you brought up a wonderful subject to discuss.
0: That was our interview with John Lee Beatty. My takeaways were, an unincorporated business is what anyone who receives 1099 income is. If you are getting 1099 income, income that you have to pay your own taxes on, then you are a business, even if you don't have an LLC or legal entity for your work. Pensions, Social Security, Investments, and Savings are part of retirement. It will be difficult to live on just one of those income sources, so don't get discouraged if one source is small. All of them will play a part. If you don't have access to a pension, you can open an IRA or a 401k. If you have a low yearly income and you're worried your Social Security will be low, set aside money to invest. Talk with your peers, family, and friends about your finances. Like John Lee said, you don't have to talk numbers, but talk details. They are probably wondering the same thing, or if you're lucky, they'll be able to tell you about it. Thank you again to John Lee for being generous with his time and his financial advice. To hear the rest of our conversation, head over to patreon.com artisticfinance and become a patron. If you aren't ready to become a patron, just email me, and I'll send you the audio directly, as it's a valuable conversation about set design and John Lee's training at Yale. If there is an artist or a type of artist that you'd love to hear on the show, please leave a comment on your preferred social network and tag Artistic Finance, except on Twitter, where the handle was taken, so tag me directly, at Ethan Steimel. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu.